0: Well, the year might not be 1984, but it sure does feel like it. I have been interested to watch my country, the home of the free. No, the home of the brave. What is it? Land of the free. Land of the free and home of the brave. Home of the brave. That's what I call it. Land of the free, home of the brave, being neither brave nor free, as government continues its overreach during the corona crisis. And we get into Acts chapter 14 because, God help us all, we need more of God's word in our hearts. Amen? This is The Deep End. Okay, Tuesday nighter, and those who watch or listen after Tuesday night, my name is Tim. Welcome to the Deep Bend Podcast. I am so glad that you are here. We are in episode 24, season three, still on lockdown across the globe, or at least mostly across the globe. Here in the North Attleboro studios, I am pleased to provide you content that I pray and help and trust will help you and give you a sense of peace and information and news, and updates as to how you should respond biblically to the crisis, to the times in which we live, to the world at large. So, welcome in, and if you are online with us, I always encourage you to please, 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 subscribe. Like and subscribe on YouTube.com slash TheDeepEndTV. YouTube.com slash TheDeepEndTV. It's not hard. Just enter that URL into your address bar, And then like and subscribe and hit the notification bell so that you can get updates as to when we are live on the deep end. All right. um, Also, welcome to Spotify, W-E-Z-E, FM 99.5 in Woonsocket. It is such a privilege to have all of you joining us. Say hello to the tech team, the uh, Corona team. I call them the Corona crisis team because social distancing. So less people in the room Hmm. to maintain order. (laughs) I'm I'm watching you and you're watching me. That's right. So let's get into the news.
1: Bad news. The news you'd
0: choose if you could choose news. Yeah, so the news you'd choose if you could choose news is, again, my weekly Corona COVID commentary. The COVID commentary. Coronavirus is affecting us all in ways that we never expected. And I need to talk about it. Why do I need to talk about it? Because I'm not just a Bible teacher. I am also a human. I live in this country, in the real world. I have a family. I worry about the future of this country. Or not worry, but I'm concerned about the future of this country. I'm concerned about what's happening in this country. And you might totally disagree with my views, and that's okay. But I want to share my views as a pastor and as a real-world human. So we didn't shut down for SARS. No. We, we didn't shut down for swine flu. No. We didn't shut down for Ebola. No. Why didn't we? Well, the truth is, is that there was differences between what we experienced with SARS and MERS, swine flu and Ebola, that are very different from what we're experiencing with coronavirus. But there are all kinds of reports that are undermining those differences altogether. Mm-hmm. So SARS and MERS, they were deadly but not easily spread. That was the difference for them. You could spread this only after you had symptoms. You could only spread SARS and MERS only after you had Symptoms And the fatality rate was an astonishing 34%. Yikes. That is high. That is high. It didn't get that far either because of that, because people tend to self-quarantine once they have the symptoms and they don't want to go around other people so it doesn't spread. Right. The swine flu was easily spread but not as deadly. Now, estimates are that there was up to uh, to 1 billion people had been infected by swine flu and it killed 500,000 people. And it's a death rate of 0.1%. That's a very low death rate. Mm -hmm. I think it's lower than seasonal flu. The seasonal flu is 0.2%. Yeah, something like that. Something like that, yeah. So that's why it's different from coronavirus. Ebola was very severe, but it was extremely hard to contract. I didn't know this. Uh, This is all from 538.com, by the way. Uh, You could only uh, catch Ebola through the exchange of bodily fluids. So you know, spit and uh, blood and, and so on and so forth. And the unmentionables. Right. <laughs> I didn't want to go there, but you sorry. did. So thank you very much, Michael. <laughs> Minnesota Michael. Sorry, anyway. Sorry, Pastor. <laughs> All that to say this that the problem with COVID-19 is that you can have zero symptoms and be a spreader of the virus. In fact, there is some uh, data coming out that, says, that suggests that you are actually more contagious during the asymptomatic period, which could last up to two weeks. Thus, the need for self-quarantining when, you're too, uh, when, you're, when you are uh, diagnosed with this uh, virus. Now, the death rate of coronavirus, if you've heard on the news, is 1 to 4%, which is quite deadly. But those rates are based on insufficient data as more research comes in. The problem with coronavirus is the asymptomatic nature of this virus. Okay, now just giving you some hard facts, and we're gonna get into the commentary in just a moment, but hard facts is this. Um, in the beginning of this crisis, if you remember back in March, it was a popular NBA player named Donovan Mitchell who contracted the virus. Very, very notable name, kind of one of the first big names to contract the virus. And he had zero symptoms the entire time he had the virus. And I think his teammate also, who I can't remember his name, uh, he also contracted the virus, zero symptoms. George Stephanopoulos, more recently, the ABC News correspondent, has the virus now and reported only having lower back pain. His wife had the virus, and he said she was down for the count for three weeks with the virus. Now, there was a picture of George Stephanopoulos walking through the Hamptons this uh, yesterday, and uh, people were quite upset with Mr. Stephanopoulos because he was supposed to be quarantining himself during the crisis, which begs the question, are there different rules for important people? Yes. Yes, thank you for answering. Oh man, anyway, a new report suggests that the virus is far more widespread than we have uh, understanding of and is far less deadly than we feared. I have a report here from NBC News that says, up to, uh, let me read it here for you. Uh, According to the uh, head of the U.S. Center for Disease Control, CDC, um, it says 25% of infected people might not have symptoms. And the vice chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff thinks it may be as high as 60 to 70% among military personnel. So that means that there's a lot more people who have it, and they don't even know that they have it. Yep. So what does that do to the death rate? It plummets yep. the death rate. This is from The Spectator, a team of researchers from Stanford University and other California colleges, recruited volunteers from uh, Santa Clara County in California, a COVID-19 hotspot, And they asked 3,000 of them to take blood tests. And the stunning results showed that up to 50 times more people than projected had the coronavirus and now had possessed antibodies that made them immune to the virus. And that basically takes the death rate and drives the number, the percentage of the death rate below the seasonal flu death rate which means that we might be shutting down the entire world economy for a regular old flu. And that is problematic for everyone in ways that we can't even start to comprehend at this point. Um, here's a thought that I want to give you. What if, really scary thought, what if the shutdown works? Hmm. <laughs> I see where you're going with this. To me, that's scarier than just adopting what Sweden's doing, herd immunity, and just going for it and living regular lives and, and protecting the people who are most susceptible to the virus and death by the virus, the elderly and the and the people in hospitals and nursing homes and so on and so forth, and just trying to get through it like we would get through the normal seasonal flu. If this shutdown works, America, don't you understand that you have just set a precedent for every potential pathogen that could come your way in the upcoming weeks months years decades is this going to become a regular facet of American or global life why don't we just shut down from September to December every year during the seasonal flu (laughs) you see we there's a lot of there's a lot of dominoes that are going to fall as a result of this shutdown and you probably have guessed it already I'm not a fan not a fan of the shutdown And uh, it's starting to bug me, and I don't even have a dog in this fight. My life has not really been upended. The only thing that my life has suffered is the lack of a crowd to preach to on Sunday morning. That's some serious suffering for you, though. Well, you know what? (laughs) I'm starting to like it. Heck, it's nice to have nobody staring nasty at me. Maybe you're staring nasty at me right now, and I don't even care because you're on the other side of a video screen. (laughs) Here's one line that I'm getting really sick of hearing, and it comes from all the politicians. If it saves just one life, it will all be worth it. Really? Is that the standard we're going to adopt for any potential hazard that human beings might face? Like Dr. Phil suggested about swimming pools, why don't we just ban them? You know, I know his number was way off. He was talking about the global number of 360,000 people that died and drowned in swimming pools a year. But he he thought it was the United States. It's like 3,600 in the United States. But nonetheless, he's a valid point. It, does it save one? Will it save 3,600 lives if we ban swimming pools? Then Let, let's ban swimming pools. How many freedoms, land of the free and home of the brave, are we going to surrender for temporary security? And what happens when we actually gain said temporary security at the expense of our freedoms? Do we then just adopt a new mentality as Americans to surrender our rights for the foreseeable future in, in, in light of potential risks and hazards to normal everyday living? Here's a theological and practical reality. You're going to die, period. There's no stopping that. You will die. I will die. My wonderful team over here is going to die. Sorry, guys.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you, watching me right now, look at the person next to you if you're with them. Tell them, you're going to die. There's no stopping it. And this is theologically proper to teach you this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Death is a part of life, and death is the, is the sign that there is a greater virus, as Pastor Geiser so eloquently spoke on Sunday, more deadly than SARS, MERS, Ebola, or COVID-19, and that is sin. Sin is a deadly virus we're all struggling with, and until Jesus comes, we're all going to have to face death. We're all going to have to face it and expect it and anticipate it, and most importantly, prepare for it, but not shut down our entire lives for it. The early church did not do this. The founders of this country did not do this. They gave their lives to give you the freedom that you are now surrendering for the sake of this virus. Did you know that? Benjamin Franklin famously said that those who sacrifice liberty for, for temporary security deserve neither security nor liberty and will eventually lose both. I mean, th- this, this is really starting to irk me. So let me get on my soapbox. In 1949... A brilliant author named George Orwell wrote a book entitled 1984. It was a book about a dystopian future in 1984 where nonstop war, government surveillance, and historical rewriting, rewriting of history, which is happening right now in our public school systems, created a society ruled by superstates and a cult-like figure named Big Brother. By the way, terms in our context, in our cultural context right now, that we throw around in everyday language that come from this book are numerous. Terms like Big Brother, The Thought Police, Orwellian, and 2 plus 2 equals 5. You ever have anybody say that? Well, what if I told you 2 plus 2 equals 5? You know where that comes from? It comes from 1984. (laughs) Incredibly, Orwell foretold of a future we are now starting to experience. His novel's promise did not come to pass in 1984. Nope. 36 years later... We are living it. Have you ever read 1984, Michael? I have not. Well, no. you're not going to have to, because you're no, living it right now. That's right. <laughs> we're all living it. George, or- George Orwell, if he had titled that book 2020, he would have been an, an historical prophet on the level of Isaiah himself.
1: Or the Simpsons.
0: Yes. <laughs> Who predicted Donald Trump would be president. Yeah, Is yeah. that the reference? Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And some other things, but we're yeah. going to
0: we'll go into that. <laughs> well, today we are living George Orwell's dark fantasy in seriously scary ways. I want to give you a couple of examples. The surrendering of our freedoms. Like the surrendering of privacy. Anybody have a backyard? You like to go in your backyard? like the government not watching what you do in your backyard? I do. Not because I'm doing anything questionable, just because it's my stinking backyard. And I pay taxes to make sure that people stay out of my backyard. Right? Well, the government's not interested in that anymore. A town in New Jersey, Elizabeth, named after Queen Elizabeth I, who was a very moderate monarch, who was known for saying, I see but say nothing. The town named after Queen Elizabeth in New Jersey, Elizabethtown, New Jersey, or Elizabeth, sorry, Elizabeth, New Jersey, has now decided to fly hundreds of drones over their entire town to spy on people during the COVID-19 crisis and report them or find them should they break social distancing guidelines. Watch this video.
2: Mayors need to be creative. We have to figure out a way to get to people that police cars can't get to. Elizabeth City Police shot this video for us to show us how drones work. The drones make it easier for police to see into certain areas where access by patrol cars is more difficult. That includes tight spaces between buildings, behind schools, and in backyards. (laughs) Failure to comply could lead to a summons or a thousand dollar fine. You think the drones watching over people is a good idea or a bad idea? I think at any at this point
0: it's worth a try. It's just an invasion of your privacy.
2: The mayor's heard it all. My answer to those people are if these drones save one life. There it is. It is clearly worth the activity yeah, you it. and the information that the drones are sending. Them. The drones donated by DJI, a Chinese company, have gone to forty-three <laughs> agencies in twenty-two states all to help enforce social distancing rules. You should not be in groups. Authorities say the drones aren't taking pictures or collecting evidence. It's a high-tech warning against a deadly virus. One of the things Amon, and the authorities here say is that they expect as the weather gets warmer, more people will be outside and there's a tendency to group together. And they think the drones will be even more effective, or at least they hope so, Again, as the weather gets warmer, and they hope that as people see something, they'll say something.
0: <laughs> so the whole world is becoming a big giant airport. If you see something, say something. Like really, this is where it has come to. Ironically, as it was mentioned in the documentary, there, the little news item there, uh, the drones being used by Elizabeth, New Jersey, to spy on neighbors, was made are made by a Chinese-based company. Yep right from Silicon Valley in China. And of course they're not recording us. Oh no, they'd never do that. Yeah, in the back of my head I was just going,
2: uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is getting nutty. And then on top of all that, do you ever notice how people are so vehemently ready to defend China at all costs from our country? From our country, I'm talking about. Why is that? Why are they so willing to defend this communist dictatorship? Could it possibly be money? Like this article from the Washington Examiner. Beware China's role as Hollywood's censor. You know that the um, Chinese uh, population, their entertainment industry has has multiplied by 1,000% over the last 10 years. It has uh, ballooned into a $9 billion industry. Hollywood has a lot of money to make over there. A lot of money to make over there. Now, interestingly enough, Chinese, China's Communist Party bans media content that depicts the following. Alcoholism, the glorification of evil, quote-unquote, ethnic conflict, religious themes, anything deemed pornographic or sexually ag- abnormal, including the mere depiction of homosexuals. And anything that harms public morality from being shown in China, these things are banned by the Chinese government. The wide range of restrictions has caught Hollywood's attention as the Chinese film market grows. The movie, Call Me By Your Name, which tells the story of a 17-year-old boy's love affair with a much older man, won an Oscar in this country in 2018, but was banned in China for his portrayal of homosexuality. Did China fight back? Nope. I'm sorry, did Hollywood fight back? Nope. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah, right. Did Hollywood fight back? (laughs) No. 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 They just rolled over and said, okay, in fact, their producers are now giving Chinese authorities more say in the early process of developments of films going forward. Ironically, one of the preferences of the Chinese government for media in their country is lighter-skinned lead actors. (laughs) Does Hollywood fight back? Of course not. There are 8 billion reasons why they shouldn't. And this is not more to my kind of entertainment option. I like basketball. I've always liked basketball. But do you remember the NBA in October? In October, I talked about this on the deep end. The NBA made real uh, jerks of themselves by refusing to defend the pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong uh, in the fall. And they were... Um, Christian brothers and sisters, by the way, singing hymns as they protested for their rights to remain free and independent uh, from Chinese dictatorship. And so when a Houston Rockets general manager in this country named Daryl Morey tweeted support of the protesters, the Chinese government threatened to pull ads and sponsorship from the NBA over the tweet. And LeBron James, the face of the NBA, tacitly tweeted support for China over the NBA and over democracy. He said the following. He said he believed that Maury was either, quote, misinformed or not really educated on the situation and that many people could have been harmed, not only financially, keyword, but physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I guess if you do lose $30 million of Chinese dollars, you could be harmed emotionally and spiritually That's if you're spiritual LeBron spiritual money right there. Yeah, spiritual money. Don't tell me that, God, that money doesn't <laughs> have a spirit. That's right. Anyway, I talked about this back in the fall. It really drove me nuts. And and now here we are, nine months later, or six months later, I should say. And uh, the NBA is uh, potentially losing its entire season. And all the players and personnel and managers are going to lose up to 25% of their pay going forward and possibly much more. This because of a virus that originated from China. Interesting how life comes full circle. Isn't it? There's more Big Brother to be warned of. This is from the mayor of the largest city in our country, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, has now turned to encouraging neighbors to to snitch on neighbors. When I was growing up, we had a saying, snitches get stitches. But de Blasio says snitches get rewarded. Yep. And watch this.
1: I think so... Now it is easier than ever when you see a crowd, when you see a line that's not distant, when you see a supermarket that's too crowded, anything, you can report it right away so we can get help there to fix the problem. And now it's as simple as taking a photo. All you gotta do is take the photo and put the location with it and bang, send a photo like this and we will make sure that enforcement comes right away. Text the photo to three one one six nine two. 692 And action will ensue. Enforcement will come to get the help we need. Or you can use the 311 app. Send that photo there and you'll make sure immediately there's follow-up. Look, this is important. I want to keep reminding people it's about saving lives. Here it is. Sending that photo in is going to help make sure that people are kept apart. And that's going to stop the disease from spreading. And that's going to save lives.
0: Save lives. Save lives. If it's worth one life. If it saves one life. Sorry. It's worth it all. Hmm. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't understand, you know, why you have such a hard time with this, Pastor. We're trying to make sure that our medical facilities are not overrun and that uh, nurses and doctors uh, can do their jobs. And I, and I agree with you. And if that was the case, if they were overrun and we saw the pictures that they, and if we could see that they were overrun and it all, all, the, all that we need to do is have somebody snap a photo and <laughs> send it to us and we would see that they're overrun and maybe we should lock down even further and forever. Until the, until the virus goes away. Which, by the way, is not going to go away. It's always going to be here. This doesn't, this doesn't actually kill the virus. It's still here after our lockdown. Yeah,
2: they're, they're, uh, they're, they're hauling people off the sides of the
0: USS Comfort in, in New York City, right? Yeah, they're not they're even so, filling the so ship. so many of them. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, oh, they're not. <laughs> no, oh. they're not. Like, I <laughs> yeah. think they had 10 beds <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. USS Comfort. 10 beds out of 1,000 <laughs> yeah. were used. So they're not overrun. In fact, they are not overrun to such an extent <laughs> that they have time to do things like this. Overrun nurses. Overrun nurses. Here's another example. You better work. Look, doctors and nurses are heroes, but those people scare me. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people uh keep talking about the overwhelming need for PPE, personal protective equipment. Uh, what is in those videos? I see a lot of PPE in those videos. Why aren't they sending those where they're needed instead of making TikTok videos out of them? TikTok videos, which by the way is a company based in China. China. <laughs> this is out of ABC News in October 2019. Lawmakers say Chinese-owned app TikTok could pose national security risks. I quote from the article: "Security experts have voiced concerns that Chinese China's vague patchwork of intelligence, national security, and cybersecurity laws compel Chinese companies. Listen to this: compel Chinese companies to support and cooperate with intelligence works, control works, intelligence work controlled by the Chinese Communist Party." That means that every company in China has to comply and support intelligence work by the government of the Chinese nation. This is unbelievable. They're building our uh, 5G chips too, right? Uh, they're building Most a lot of, of stuff. They're sending us all of our uh, Advil, our Tylenol, all of that stuff. They're sending a ton of stuff. All the M3 masks? La- ladies 3M, and gentlemen, M, excuse me. Ladies and gentlemen, 1500 years ago, the Roman Empire destroyed itself from within. How? because the Goths and the Vandals started infiltrating the borders of the nation very slowly, and eventually they overthrew the Roman army from within. Will history repeat itself? America has oftentimes been compared to the ancient Roman Empire, and it does bear a lot of resemblance in many ways. Only instead of invading armies on horses, we have to face higher security threats as we stay home, get online more, and gleefully send our information to a communist nation which is fast becoming the leader of a new global society. It's sad. It seems inevitable. You don't have to read 1984, friend. You're living it. That's my commentary. And you say, why would you spend so much time in the commentary? i come here for the word. Well, because where we are as a culture has everything to do with the word. And here's why. (laughs) Because you are living in a country that eventually will come to an end. Maybe sooner than I thought. I don't know. I thought America had a couple of good centuries left, but I don't think so. I'm not sure. And, you, and, I, and I as an American, I'm sad about that. But as a Christian, I kind of expect it. And here's the thing. Here's why we go to the Word now. Here's why we do COVID commentary and talk about this stuff. Do you know why? Because we are citizens, not first of this country. We are citizens of heaven. And so we go to the Word of God with that in mind, and we need to get to the book of Acts, or I'll drive myself nuts. So why don't we go to an ad and then to the book of Acts for the for today? The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv/partner or on the Cash App with the Cash Tag
2: The Deep End TV.
0: Acts chapter 14 is an incredible chapter. It is so good. I am so excited to teach you this chapter. I love it. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey together. There are three missionary journeys in the book of Acts from Acts chapter 13 onward. All of them involve the apostle Paul, and the first one involves him and Barnabas. In fact, in the first journey of Paul and Barnabas, Paul becomes an official apostle. He performs apostolic works, and he is considered the leader of the Paul and Barnabas gang going forward. But in chapter 14 of the book of Acts, and I call this uh, episode steady commitment to the gospel, embracing the perils of the mission, you're going to see Paul and Barnabas are going to encounter all kinds of different reception from the cities and towns to which they travel. At At times, they are highly regarded as ambassadors for the Lord. Then at other times, they are undermined by their own countrymen and hated. Then at other times, they are worshipped as gods by foreigners. And then finally, they are rejected and hunted down as supposed impostors. What a varied response to the same message. Amen? Some people hate them. Some people love them. Some people deify them. And in spite of all this, Paul and Barnabas are glad, are glad to share the gospel and continue the advancement of Jesus' work across the known world at the time. The book The chapter, Acts chapter 14, is an incredible passage that teaches us the importance of steady commitment to the gospel and how we must embrace the inherent perils and pitfalls of ministry and or doing life in Jesus' name. So even if you're not a missionary, this applies to you. There's a two-edged sword to Christian living, friend. Some people will hate you. Some people might deify you. Both our obstacles are obstacles or both are potential pitfalls to your faith. We must stay the course and point people to Jesus, amen? And leave the church ultimately in the hands of the living God. So let's get into the text. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. It says this. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The first mention of this uh, verse is Iconium, and Iconium is made up, uh, is one of the parts of the uh, province of Galatia. Now, I want to just mention that for this reason, because Galatia should sound familiar to you. If you read the Bible, you know that there's a book called Galatians, and this this is an important note about studying through the book of Acts. The book of Acts outlines Paul's missionary journeys through all these random cities and provinces in the Roman Empire in the first century, and then after the book of Acts, you have a, uh, an assortment of letters in the New Testament, beginning with Romans, then First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and onward, and uh, so on and so forth. And, and what, what's interesting is that this is how you're supposed to study the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you get the narrative history of Paul's interaction with these areas, and then after the book of Acts, you actually get the letters that he wrote back to these areas in pastoral concern for their particular context— And here's the interesting thing. Every context was different. Like Galatia, what we're talking about today in this chapter, Galatia, had a real problem with uh, reconciling the fact that uh, Gentiles did not have to become Jewish before they became Christian. And, and, And a lot of the hostility that Paul and Barnabas experienced in Galatia, in Iconium, comes from the Jewish believers and the Gentile converts to Judaism. And the reason why is because they felt like the older brother in Jesus' story, the prodigal son. The older brother felt like he was entitled, entitled to I don't know what, more parties, more pleasures, more blessings because he was an obedient uh, disciple or obedient son of the father. And so when the rebellious son comes home and the father welcomes him and clothes him and receives him back, free and clear, the older brother is a little bit upset. In fact, he doesn't even go into the party at the end of the story. Why? Because he's upset that the father received the son without the son being a longtime obedient son as the older son considered himself to be. So what you have here in Galatia is you have this interaction in Acts chapter 14, Paul going through this area and experiencing a lot of hostility from a lot of older brothers, and he will write back to these men in the book of Galatians about how they will potentially uh, undo a lot of Christian ministry because they, um, they don't have a heart for people who are far from God. Anyway... Let's take a look at the first verse again. It says, they went into the synagogue and they spoke in such a way. I love that. Look at this. This is great. They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. It speaks to the importance of preaching. Preaching can and should be powerful, should be convincing, should be passionate, should be effective. I'm going to say something that sounds a little bit rude, but it's true. If your preacher does not make the Bible interesting, find another preacher. Because it's a crime, in my opinion. It's a crime to make the Bible boring, to make the gospel boring, the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. How can you make resurrection boring? And I, and I just, I believe that, that good communication, as I was taught in seminary, uh, includes three key aspects, three key aspects. I call them the, they call them the modes of, of persuasion. Pathos, which means you've got passion for what you're going to say. So when you preach and teach and you tell people about Jesus, there should be a passion. Because if you want to convince people, it should come from your heart, right? It shouldn't come from just your head or just, you know, your your education. It should come from deep down, like you believe it. And then ethos. Ethos is the um, ethical living according to what the preacher is teaching. And then there's the logos, which is the reasonable argument to be made for what the preacher or communicator is telling you. Pathos, ethos, logos. Those are the three elements of great teaching, great persuasion. Paul had that, and you can see it uh, throughout the book of Acts. He has passion. He's willing to get up and fight for this message. He has an ethical mandate in his own life. He lives according to what he preaches. He, pra- he walks the walk. He doesn't just talk to talk. And then he has a, a reasonable argument to be made, as we're going to see later on in uh, Athens. He makes logical arguments for the God of the universe and the resurrection of the dead. Great preachers are passionate. Great teachers are passionate about their content because they believe it's true. They live it, and they've argued it in their heads. They don't just believe it in their heart. They know it in their heads that it's true. Verse 2 says, though, and look at it again. It says, the unbelieving Jews stirred up. So there's, there's a great number of people who believe, but then the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So in this passage, right here, right off the bat, in Acts chapter 14, you have two responses to the gospel, two completely different responses. First, you've got many people believing, and then you've got many people uh, attacking, poisoning. The word is poisoning the minds of the brothers, and you ask yourself, well what did they poison their minds with? Well, there's a little interesting backstory to this passage uh, of Paul being in Iconium. There's a collection of books that did not make it into the New Testament. We call them the Apocrypha. These are ancient texts dated somewhere around two to three, to two to four centuries after the resurrection of Jesus. So we're talking about 200 to 400 AD. And they're a collection of writings that are supposed writings of church history that never made it into the canon of Scripture, the collection of writings we now call the New Testament. And the reason why they didn't is because they did not have apostolic authority. Uh, They weren't considered authoritative by the church fathers in the first century. They weren't quoted by many of the leading church fathers, such as Irenaeus uh, and uh, others. Uh, And one of those books, one of those apocryphal books, is called the Acts of Thecla the Acts of Thecla, and it's I only bring it up because it was set in Iconium where Paul is right now in Acts chapter 14, and according to this story, according to this book, the Acts of Thecla, the apostle Paul fell in love with a woman named Thecla, and their romance became so torrid that it broke up her whole family and thus turned the city against them. The book is probably dated about two centuries after Paul lived, so we're talking about 250 to 260 AD, and of course, it's not true, but it gives light to the idea of, what the people may have tried to poison the minds of the believers with. They poisoned their minds of the believers with maybe this, this uh, rumor of a love affair with a woman named Thecla, and the, and the love affair broke up Thecla's family, and uh, the, the family suffered terribly because of the gospel that Paul was preaching. And, and that's what happens. Rumors get started. It's one, of the, it's one of the perils of modern ministry even today. Rumors get started about preachers and teachers on the Internet. We don't even check the source sometimes. We just cite it. We just assume the worst about people. We just think, oh, that guy over there with that big church, well, he must be compromising. I can't tell you how many times we've gotten that on our own Facebook page at our church, Waters Church, of people making comments like, oh, big church must be compromisers. They just make assumptions. They just make assumptions about what they hear, and so they poison the minds of effective ministry. It happened with the Apostle Paul. It's going to happen today. Be careful of the rumor mill. Be careful of the grapevine. Where are you getting your information? What are you hearing about other preachers and teachers? You know, there's a very famous moment in the Gospels where, where John, I think, John and James wanted to uh, call down fire on somebody because, the, or, or, or rebuke somebody because he was ministering in Jesus' name and he didn't associate with the apostles or the disciples at the time. And, and Jesus says to them, Don't rebuke them. Anyone who speaks wise of me, well of me one moment, will not rebuke me the next. He who is not against you is for you. Sometimes in Christians, we're so eager to disprove each other. We're so eager to attack each other that we ultimately just end up hurting each other. The famous phrase that we throw around in the churches is true. that The church is the only army in the history of the world that shoots its own wounded or shoots its own commanders. Before you fly with that rumor, before you try to poison someone else's mind with something that you heard from someone else, why don't you check if it's true? Maybe go and visit the place that you're hearing about. Anyway. Effective preaching, and this is a fact. This is a fact of ministry and it's a fact of Christian living. Effective preaching both persuades many people and pushes many people away. I can preach the same exact message to the same crowd. Some people will love it and some people will hate it. Some people will cheer and some people will jeer. It's just the reality of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the dividing line of not just the timeline of human history, B.C. and A.D. He's a dividing line of spiritual history. You're either for him or against him. It's, it's all about Jesus. It's amazing how this gospel doesn't not always just change hearts. It sometimes exposes hearts, the hardness of men's hearts verse 3 though I love this because it says that they remained there for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands and I love this from Paul and Barnabas because they didn't run from opposition isn't that great they didn't just kowtow they didn't just, they didn't just tuck tail and run later on uh, Paul would write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16 9 he said a wide door for effective work has opened for me and there are many adversaries get that there's a wide door of effective work that is open, and I've got many adversaries. So which is a Paul? Is it an effective door? Is it a wide door of effective work, or are there many people who oppose you? It's both and. That's gospel living, friend. That's gospel mission. That's the church. That's being a Christian. Some people are going to love you. Some people are going to hate you. There was a great failure of the 20th century church, and I'm talking ma- mostly about the mainline denominations in this country, because they had a lot of cultural cachet in the early part of the last century When scientific discovery became more commonplace in our culture, they capitulated a lot of the supernatural truths written in Scripture, such as the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and even the resurrection. So many of these mainline denominations, which are now uh, losing people left, right, and center from their ranks— I'm talking about the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the big white churches, mainline, because they're mostly on the main streets of America. They're losing people left, right, and center. Why? Because 100 years ago, they made a decision. They made a decision that we could no longer, based on science, trust the reliability of Scripture's record of the supernatural. So those supernatural stories didn't actually happen. They're like fables, like Aesop's fable. Well, then you lump the resurrection in that, and you lose the power of the gospel, right? The gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He beat death. Without that message, the gospel is annulled. And so the moment that you take that moment, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, out of the message of Christianity, you lose Christianity. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The point that I'm trying to make is don't kowtow to the people who hate what you believe. Don't, Don't compromise because people don't like it. For heaven's sakes, this is what it's all about. It's it's in the record of Scripture that Paul and Barnabas were both loved and hated in the same context by different groups of people. It's there to train you on how to be faithful Christians. Some people are going to love you. Some people are going to hate you. What do you do? You keep believing. You keep trusting. Acts chapter 14, verse 4 goes on and says this. But the people of the city were divided, like we just said, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now the enemy ups the ante in uh, animosity towards Paul and Barnabas. And this is another lesson here in the text they don't stay. <laughs> Can we just put it back up there on the full screen? Because it says this, an attempt was made to mistreat them and stone them, and then they fled. They fled. They didn't stay and become whipping posts for the enemies of the gospel. No, they had some smarts about them. There's a lesson here for some Christians. Some Christians are in relationships with people, and they don't respect you. In fact, they disrespect you on purpose because you're a Christian, and you falsely believe that it's your cross to bear that you should just remain in relationship with them because you know what? After all, Jesus suffered for your sins, so you have to suffer too. That's ridiculous. If somebody doesn't respect you and does this on purpose, purposefully, they do this to hurt you regularly because you're a Christian, you are under no obligation to maintain a relationship with them if you do not have to. And so be careful of that. We have a a model in Scripture here. They were going to be killed. They're going to be stoned. So they left and they went on. They followed the dictates of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. You know, I was saying this a couple of years. I think I was saying this last year or even earlier in the this season in, in the deep end, in the book of Acts, that when people don't listen, walk away. And someone commented and said, yeah, but they still need Jesus. No, listen. Jesus told us, if they don't listen to you in Luke chapter 10, then you shake the dust off your feet and you wipe it off as a testimony against them. And, and Jesus then said, uh, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for the people who reject his messengers of grace. I mean, Je- Jesus does not give you a call to, uh, to, to doormathood. <laughs> that, that's not what you are. You are a child of the Most High God. Now, some of you can't get away from the people who, you know, trounce on your faith, and I understand that. And, and to you, I commend you to prayer, fasting, reading the Word of God, small group community, however you can get it, and local church attendance, that you hold and create relationships with Christ, Christians, dearer than those relationships that are negative and harmful to you. But you are not called to be a whipping post. Moving on, verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. Look at the loud voice, by the way. Love that, because I'm a loud preacher. (laughs) Loud voice. Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, this is an interesting passage, because did you see what it says there? It says he listened to Paul, and then Paul looking intently at him. What did Paul see? Paul saw that he had the faith to be made well. Now, the question that you might be asking in this passage is, is faith required to be made well? And the answer is yes. Of course it's required to be made well. But sometimes the answer in Scripture is no. There's a couple of people who get healed, and they don't even believe that they're going to be healed. Like the guy who was sitting at the Pool of Siloam in John chapter 5. Jesus even asks him, do you want to get well? And He says, well, I don't really have anybody to help me. He didn't expect Jesus to say, now stand up and take your mat and walk, and he did. Jesus said, stand up, take, your, take up your mat and walk. Now, you could argue that the man had faith to actually try standing up and taking his mat and walk, but the fact of the matter is that he wasn't expecting it that day. He wasn't expecting Jesus to heal him. But is that really the question that this text is asking? I think no. I think the, the, the text is actually teaching us a very important aspect of church ministry, and that is, remember, it says that Paul had been speaking, and, and this man had been hearing Paul. What was Paul speaking? The gospel, the word of God. And having heard the word, this man came to a level of faith that anticipated healing. What is the text teaching? It's actually teaching us what Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. How do I grow my faith? You get into the word. You get under the word. You get taught the word. The word of God is taught to increase your faith in the word of God. This is why Jesus likens the word of God to a seed or leaven yeast that you put a little bit in and it spreads through the whole batch of dough or you put a seed in the ground and it becomes many more seeds and many more crops and it and it bears fruit in in, in, in um, uh, exponential ways, right? This is what faith is. This is what the Word of God does. It inspires faith. This is why you want to tune in to the deep end. This is why you want to go to church and hear God's Word. This is why you want to have personal time in God's word on a regular basis because it builds your faith. Anyway, moving on in the passage, verse 11. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now that phrase saying in Lyconian is there so that we realize that Paul and Barnabas probably didn't understand what they were saying at this point, because watch what happens. They said in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, this is interesting because Paul and Barnabas have just come to present the gospel. They've just come to do Christian missionary work. They've just come to share the message of Jesus. But what happens? This one particular place, this one particular place decides that they are gods because of a miracle, because of the good works of Paul. And so they're ready to deify them, which speaks to the other side, the other dangerous, if you will, on the spectrum of danger in Christian missionary work, we've already discussed the danger of being hated and being vilified for your faith. Well, on the other side, what do you think's over there? The danger of being deified for your work in Christ. The danger of being honored as a God to some people. And so it just brings me to this, Key point. Like, this is a fact of the devil. This is how he plays with you as a Christian. If the devil can't get you discouraged with rejection and hostility, he will entice you with praise and flattery. If he can't get you discouraged with rejection and hostility, he will entice you with praise and flattery. There's a great movie that you should go watch. It's called The Devil's Advocate. It's a fantastic movie made in 1997. It's about a lawyer that is uh, recruited by a high powered uh, law firm in New York City. And he finds out eventually that the law firm, the, the head of the law firm, is uh, played by Al Pacino, is actually the devil himself. And the famous line from that, that movie is that the devil keeps saying, Vanity is definitely my favorite sin. And at the end of the movie, there's this fantastic uh, monologue by Satan, played by Al, Chippino, Al, Al Pacino, uh, to Keanu Reeves. And I just want to play you the clip because look at this is the devil in person. This is how he talks about us.
2: Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him in spite of all his imperfections. I'm a fan of man. A humanist. Maybe the last human.
0: <laughs> it's such a fantastic clip, and it's so true. Like, that, that movie is so well-researched on the devil's schemes and ploys, but that is the double-edged sword of Christian ministry, and churches would do well to pay attention to this, because if the devil can't discourage you, he will try to deify you, and then before you know it, we're, we're going to fall for that one. We're, that's the temptation of most Christian leaders, is to fall into this Well, I am that important mentality. Well, I am. You know, the people rely upon me. This is why a lot of preachers can never actually do anything else with their lives because they identify themselves as preacher and almost savior first. You know, here's the reality. You can't be someone else's Jesus. You can't be someone else's savior. There's only one. Your job as a Christian is not to become someone else's savior. Your job as a Christian is to point them to the savior, to lead them to him. Be careful, Christian, of the double-edged sword of Christian missionary or Christian mission or Christian living. Discouragement or praise and accomplishment. Both both ends of the spectrum can poison your faith. you got you to have a steady commitment to the gospel and to be content with what God has you to do for as long as he has you to do it until he calls you home. Anyway, um, they were ready to sacrifice to uh, Paul and Barnabas and And Paul speaks up, and look what it says in verse 14. When when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men. Of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations now I just I just want you to note verse sixteen here, because this is very good theology. We're going to talk about this for a moment. In past generations he, that is God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So first, verse 14 to 15, they categorically reject the celebrity status that these people wanted to confer upon them. And we should also note how quickly and how willingly the city, the people of the city were willing to anoint them as some sort of divine beings. That's the human heart. Like that, that's kind of how people are. There's such a need deep down in the human heart for an experience with um, someone who is other human. Superhuman, if you will. There's such a need for that that will defy almost anybody. Uh, I'm watching a, a great documentary right now on the 1990s Bulls team, Chicago Bulls. Again, fan of the NBA. Michael Jordan was larger than life in the 1990s. He was enormous. Everybody loved him. But I was watching this documentary, and I was just so <laughs> I was just taken aback by the fans of of Michael Jordan wherever he went people turned into screaming lunatics and maniacs and just raised their hands stretched out as if to reach out to him. And in and, and, and one shot, particularly in the documentary, he's literally walking a 15-foot distance from a building to a bus and about 25 feet off to the right, way back, away from where he's walking, there are screaming hordes of fans literally trying to reach over the fence to try to touch him. And you know what? I'm a fan of basketball, and I liked Michael Jordan, and I think basketball is a great sport, and I love watching a game. But I'm not about to sit and wait for the guy to come out of a building and walk 15 feet, 30 feet away from me so that I can scream and try to reach out to him. But what does it betray about the human condition? It betrays the reality that we have this desperate need to connect with someone that is more than human. And, and, and in their minds, he is, I guess, more than human. In fact, there's a very famous line when he goes to get interviewed by a French sports commentator uh, in, in the documentary where it says, Michael Jordan is the closest thing that we have to a god on this earth. <laughs> really? Because he can play a sport really well? Like, But you see what the human heart needs? It needs a relationship. It needs a connection with someone who is more than human. Guess what? That's why Jesus was the divine son of the living God who was more than human. He was not just fully human, he was fully God, and only in him do we have that eternal need met. Only in him does the cry for the human heart to relate to someone that is more than human actually be met in Christ Jesus. So that is why Paul and Barnabas so categorically reject the worship of men. And pastors and leaders and teachers in the church would do well to follow suit. Don't praise me, praise him. He sent me to tell you about him. Anything good that I have to offer you as a pastor comes from God's word. Like that's why I never run out of material to share with you. Do you know why? Because it's all from here, it's all from his word. That's that's what I've got to share with you. Jesus and Jesus alone. Now let's bear down on verse 16, and let's put it up full screen again, because Paul gives us good theology here. He says, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. What does he mean by that? Okay, I'm going to tell you something. It's very, very theologically sound. There are two testimonies from God to the human race. There are two testimonies. The first testimony we're very familiar with as Christians in America. It's called the Bible. This is God's, we call this as theologians, we call this God's special revelation special in that we have the details. We know what Jesus' name is. We know when he was born. We know to whom he was born. We know the miracles he performed. We know the message that he proclaimed. And we believe that, and we receive that. That's special revelation. But there's a second testimony that God has given to man. It's called general revelation. General revelation. So special, the Bible, general nature. It actually starts in Genesis 820 when when Noah kind of gets off the ark there and God makes a promise and he says, listen, I make a promise I'm never going to curse the earth again with a flood. And then in verse 22 he says, while, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, I am making a promise that these orders of the created uh, world will continue according to my word. And what is God saying to Noah? He's saying I'm going to give a general revelation to the, to the nations of the world. This answers the age-old question... Of what about people who have never heard of Jesus? Well, they have general revelation. Paul will say such in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. He says these words, For what can be known about God is plain to them, who is them, those without special revelation, those without the written word of God, because, God has made it shown, because because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." Did you hear that? What Paul says here in Acts chapter 14, that, that 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 God, verse 17, notably, he did not leave himself without witness. For why? What's the witness? He gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. General revelation is enough for people to turn to God and say, there must be an intelligence behind all of this. But what happens? What does the history of humanity teach us. We don't worship God for the good things that he gives us. No. What we often do is worship the good things and use God to get them. And that's exactly what you have here in Acts chapter 14. That's why they wanted to deify Paul and Barnabas. And I'll tell you something. The worst thing that they could have done, the worst mistake Paul and Barnabas could have made in Acts chapter 14 was to accept the praises of people. Why? We're going to tell you why. Verse 18, it says this, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So they're sitting there slaughtering the cow, slaughtering the oxen, and Paul's like, please stop. What's it teaching us? It's teaching us that it's hard to break the stronghold of idolatry over people's lives. This is why Jesus makes it patently clear. You know that famous phrase we like to throw around and we like to stick on our refrigerators and on our coffee mugs? With God, all things are possible. You know the context of that phrase? The context of that phrase was right after the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus because he was so wealthy, he didn't want to surrender his wealth to have a relationship with Jesus. And the disciples say, and actually, and Jesus says, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are aghast. They're like, if they can't get saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus then in that context says, with man this is impossible, but now with God, with God all things are possible. The context of that phrase is, yes, the human heart is so inclined to permanently and firmly attach itself to the idols of this world that it seems an impenetrable, unbreakable bond, but the hope that we have is that God is powerful enough to break that bond and release that heart from idolatry and bring that heart to himself. That's why salvation is never about you crossing your spiritual T's and dotting your religious I's. It's always a work of God's grace that through his word, he breaks your heart free from the idolatry of the age. Enjoy basketball, absolutely. Enjoy harvest, enjoy your vegetables and your meals and your sports and your entertainment. Enjoy them, but don't worship them. Enjoy your pastor and the teaching that you receive, but don't worship them. Those things are good gifts from your Father in heaven. Moving forward, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Now look at this. Hate travels, friend. (laughs) Hate travels. Jews came from Iconium and Antioch. That's where Paul had just left. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on to Barnabas with Barnabas to Derbe. This is incredible. The people, the people. Now I just said to you, be careful of receiving the praise of people. Here's why: because the people who were ready to anoint Paul and Barnabas as gods, all it took was a crowd of Jews coming from Antioch and Iconium to come and persuade the crowds to hate them. Isn't that phenomenally interesting? In one moment, they were ready to anoint them as gods, and then the very next moment, they're stoning. They're chucking rocks at their heads. See, this is the danger of accepting praise from people. Because you accept praise from people today, then you work for, for that same praise from those same people for the rest of your life, and you may never get it again. And it's always, it's always a fool's errand because, you know what? People are fickle in their praise. They love you today. They hate you tomorrow. There's actually a historical story that illustrates this quite well. It has to do with Captain James Hook. Ah, Cook. <laughs> I almost said Hook. Captain James Cook. Hook is the imaginary captain in Peter Pan. James Cook was a British naval captain who navigated all over the world and actually provided a lot of the resources for modern-day maps today. But he came upon the um, uh, Hawaii, and he was welcomed by the natives as a god. Something about the mast of his ship and the way that the ship uh, sailed around the island. Uh, actually aligned and coordinated with the Hawaiians' legends of their god, Lono. So when Cook and his men came ashore, they were regarded as gods and deified by the locals, and Cook exploited their worship for quite a while, taking advantage of the women and their kindness. Well, eventually it all came crashing down because one of his crewmen died, and the British naval officers were exposed as mere humans. Then tensions arose between Cook's men and the natives in one particular squabble, Cook and a native were arguing. The native uh, hit Cook on the head with a club, and when he hit him on the club, Cook actually groaned, and in their religion, the god Lono never groaned because he never felt pain, and so when they saw Cook had felt pain, they jumped on him and stabbed him to death, and he died on that island. See, what happens when you exploit the praises of people, you might become a casualty of your own desire for their praise. You've got to be careful. You can't work for the praise of men. You must work only for the praise of God. Going on in the chapter, Paul and Barnabas says this, When they had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, and encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay. I just want you to notice that in verse 21, this is so cool. When they had preached the gospel in that city, that's Derbe, they returned to Lystra, where Paul had just been threatened with his life, and Iconium, and to Antioch. Now, these two cities had just rejected them large-scale, and they returned. Why? Because there were disciples there. What courage! By the way, did you notice in the previous verse that he actually didn't even have a chance to get to? Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city. The disciples gathered around him, and he got back up and went back into the city. I just think that's amazing. Do you know what it teaches us about Christian ministry? You know what it teaches about a Christian living? It teaches us that you gotta have courage. Faith should produce courage. So if you're in the Word of God, and according to Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God, and you're growing in faith, your faith should be evidenced by a growing courage in life, friend. This is why I spend so much time talking about what I don't like about this coronavirus crisis. This is why I talk about it, because the, the Christians that are getting worked up about this are the ones that really frustrate me. First off, get the facts. Secondly, don't fear. Like You're a Christian. This world is not your home. I, I'm i not saying go take unnecessary risks, please. I mean, I don't think I have to say that, but I'll say it for the sake of those who might think i I'm I'm suggesting taking uh, stupid risks. No, but life itself is a risk. And guess what? The good news for Christians is you can take the risks of life knowing that this life is not the end. You can take risks in Jesus. Like risks in starting that family. That's a big risk. And a lot of a lot of Christians that I see, young Christians, are shirking family and children because they don't know. Can we afford it? Can we afford it? You know what, Charlotte and I? When we started having a family, we were dead broke. When we had babies, we were even broke. And God was faithful. And he's been more faithful than I can tell you, has blessed us. Bountifully, as we have honored him and served him, because when you put God first, He adds all the other things into your life and takes care of it, and then protects it so that you don't lose it. This is this is what faith should produce in Christians. This is what hearing God's word should produce in you—a level of courage that the world around you doesn't have. So, in the midst of Corona, uh, COVID nineteen, you don't freak out like everybody else. You don't imagine the worst. The theologian Peter Lighthart has a fantastic book about this called Deep Comedy. It's actually an old book. I love Peter Lighthart. If you ever want to read somebody that's really deep, really great, read him. It's a message about how Christianity differs from every ancient paganism. Every ancient paganism had a dystopian view of the world, aka 1984, George Elwell, Orwell. And every pagan philosophy believed that the world was heading toward. A disastrous end, and the reason why is because they just looked at life. They saw how everybody just inevitably gets old, deteriorates, decays, and dies. Christianity comes on the scene and undoes all of that. It speaks of an eternal hope. It speaks of a resurrection. It speaks of death not being the end. It speaks of, 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 of a new heavens and a new earth. And, and, and the last line from the book of Revelation is eternal joy and, and, and gladness in the presence of Almighty God that, that we don't have a dystopian view of the future. We have a utopian view of the future. We are positive. Why? Because we've read the book. So we don't freak out when we see the world freaking out. We're people of hope. The last thing that I want to mention from this chapter is verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Elders are enormously important. So let me talk about elders and then we're done. Number one, you don't have a church until you have elders. You don't have a church until you have elders. So no, you in your home, on your podcast app and listening to your worship music is not a church. You cannot do church where you are. Sorry. <laughs> you need to have elders. Elders are spiritual overseers. I want to go over this real quickly. And we're going to talk about this later on too in Acts chapter 20, but elders are appointed. This is what Paul says to Tim Titus in Titus 1:5. This is why I left you in Crete that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. They have to be appointed to take charge of the church. And then there are standards for elders. Above reproach. The husband of one wife. Not the wife of one husband. Sorry, egalitarians. But it is the husband of one wife. And only theologians know what I'm talking about when I say that term. So you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Elders are there to um, take care of the spiritual lives of the people. And Paul gives deeper instructions to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He uses three Greek words, three Greek terms to talk about elders. First off, presbyteros. Acts chapter twenty verse seventeen, and then he uses the word episkopos in Acts chapter twenty verse twenty eight, and then he uses the word poimano. Poimano can also be translated shepherd, but those terms are important because they illustrate the role of a elder. So you've probably heard of the term Presbyterian. It comes from the word presbyteros in the Greek, which means overseer. Or Episcopalian is another denomination that gets its name from the idea that there is an overseer, a bishop who is the episcopas of a certain region. And poimon is just a, a term. We don't have any denominations named after that, but that means shepherd. And they, they feed, they nourish, they cherish the flock of God. Episcopas are appointed bishops, presbyters. They keep watch over you. By the way, the Bible says that you should pay your elders. Verse uh, 17 of 1 Timothy 5 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, The word in Greek is time, it says time in English, but it's time in Greek, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Double honor means double payment, compensation. The word time is a term of financial compensation. This is what the scriptures teach concerning elders. They are of value to you. 1 Peter 5.3 tells us that elders are not to domineer over those in in their charge, but they should be examples. So an elder has to be an example to the church. Uh, Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. You consider, their outcome of, uh, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Their lives should be uh, imitatable. They should, be, they should have lives that you honor and respect because why? They live according to God's word. And then verse 17, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. We pay for policemen. We pay for firefighters. We pay for governors and elected officials. We should pay and support elders who oversee the most valuable part of our being, our souls, and then respect them and listen to them. I can't tell you the number of stories that I have of people who do not listen to their elders or their church pastors, and then they suffer the consequences, and then they run to another church. I had a lady in our church come to us from another church. This was many years ago. And she came. Her husband had left her with two kids. She was dead broke. She had to move back in with her parents. And then I met the pastor of the church that she left. And then I found out why she left the church. You know why she left the church? Because she wanted to marry that guy. And the pastor said, you shouldn't marry that guy. He's not a good guy. I can tell you right now, that guy's going to hurt you. So what did she do? Did she listen to the elder? Did she listen to the pastor? No. She left the church and went to another church. Not our church. Got married to the guy at a Justice of the Peace. Had two kids. And he turned out to be exactly what the pastor warned he, her he was going to be. And he left her with two kids, and she was dead broke. And she's been struggling ever since. But if she just listened to the pastor, if she just listened to the elder, to the overseer, she would have saved herself an inordinate amount of personal harm and damage. Sometimes I think that, church, that people in the church assume that the only role of the church is to encourage and comfort I had a little bit of a back and forth with somebody on Twitter about this recently. Like pastors and leaders. And you know what? There's a lot of pastors and leaders out there. And that's all they'll ever do for you. Just encourage you and comfort you. They're there. It's okay. Chin up, champ. Like that's what they say. Sometimes the pastor has to challenge you and rebuke you. According to the word, of course, according to the word. Sometimes they're there to warn you of dangers. That's what a shepherd does. If you have a pastor that only ever tells you nice things, know this, the guy has no spine and he's not telling you the truth because a pastor needs to confront you with truth that speaks to the age in which you live. That's that's why I do what I do. I want to challenge you to fearless living. I see too much fear in the church too much throwing their hands up in the air, too much acting like the world. This is not the time to do that. We need strong Christians in an age where everyone is losing their minds. And we need vocal Christians to stand up for what is right, freedom, and liberty, the things that God believes in. Elders in every town. And then the last thing, I love this, verse 23. And then they committed them to the Lord. What does an elder do? He commits God's people, not to himself, but to the Lord. Last verse we're going to share with you, verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Don't you love Bible names? <laughs> and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch and where they had been commended by the, uh, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they come home from their missionary journey, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This is important, how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Now this last passage is just setting up. Uh, Acts chapter 15, which is an extremely important chapter. Come back next week. We're going to talk about it. Acts chapter 15. Because why? The gospel is going to those younger brothers who do not come into the Jewish faith first and then become Christians. Because up until now, the, the Christian faith was largely a Jewish sect. And now Gentiles are not becoming Jewish and they're becoming Christians. And so this is going to lead to a big hababaloo. How about that word? <laughs> in the first Jerusalem council. That's the episode. I hope I've helped you. I hope I've encouraged you. I hope I've challenged you, and I hope I've warned you. Stay strong. Subscribe, youtube.com slash thedeependtv. Subscribe. Like it. Whether or not you like the episode, like it. There's rewards in heaven if you do. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.